So this is episode 53 of the Birding Life podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. I am really excited about today's guest. This has been an episode that I've looked forward to doing right from the beginning of when I started this podcast. Today, I'm going to interview Callan Cohen. He is the co-author of two books, including one of my favorite books, Southern African Bird Finder. This is an episode that is packed with so much valuable information and tips from one of the region's best birders. As always, The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Birdlasser bird logging app. Spot, plot, play a part, download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is so much more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Be sure to check out our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our youth podcast, and our various social media platforms. If you have a story that you'd like to share, you can simply send us a voice note, and we'll look to include it in the show. Before we hear from Callan, we are going to catch up with Craig Widows, who's going to give us an update on his family's big year that they've been doing around South Africa. So let's hear from Craig. Hey everyone, coming to you from incredibly green and wet Kalahari at the moment. Um, unfortunately, I'm here for work, which means I don't have my family with me, which means that we can't, birds I'm seeing this week aren't being going to be counted towards our birding big year total, which is a bit upsetting, but nevertheless, we'll be back in the Kalahari together in a later stage this year. Um, yeah, it's been an incredible six weeks since we last caught up with, with everyone. Uh, we did the Limpopo stretch of our birding big year, which was a first for our family to be getting up and spending that amount of time in, in, in the area. And um, yeah, it was absolutely stunning. We managed to stay in nails fair for a couple days um which yeah the highlight there was, was just the number of less in which were around and then we moved our, our way through to Polokwane where we met up with Daniel Engerbrecht um, and his family very very happily hosted us which was really really kind of them and we did some birding with Daniel what yeah what an incredible young guy he is and, and the highlight of that little stretch was was on its chat flying between the kids I, I was pretty surreal experience we then made our way towards an extremely wet Mkhobosluf yeah most of the roads in uh, down Woodbush were pretty trapped um, but we had a fantastic time there with uh, David, one of BirdLife South Africa's community bird guides, and managed to get most of the targets we we're looking for. And yeah, it's just those of you who have been to the area know it's, it's it's such an incredibly special, special area to be in. Uh, we then made our way up towards um, Louis Trichard in the Sopansburg area, where we met up with Samson, another community bird guide, which was also just great. Unfortunately, again, it had to be extremely wet today, which made things a bit tricky. But yeah, uh, Blue Spotted Wood Dove was put on a show for us, which was absolutely spectacular. And, and again, just to be doing kind of that, having those experiences with those birds, with our, our, our kids with us, yeah, it's just, it's, it's something that we really don't don't get used to. Uh, and then, yeah, we started our, our way through the the 20 days camping through Kruger from top to bottom and yeah we was we've myself and Christine have been chatting about it and uh, since then and it's it's the closest we've been as a family you know be spending such a prolonged period of time <laughs> in like a tiny tent <laughs> camping together um has its challenges but wow it, it really got it just allowed us to spend such amazing time together and just yeah inc- incredible 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 experience northern Kruger put on a show for us which was fantastic thankfully the rain stopped the first two days up in northern Kruger the roads were closed um which was very devastating to have Mahoney Loop right there, but not able to drive it. Uh, but thankfully, the roads were opened, and um, yeah, we got to do some some great drives there. Um, highlights of Northern Kruger, Senegal Kukul, Bohms and Mottled Spinetail um, were, were great. Meave Starling as well was also just such a special bird to see. And um, yeah, we, we dipped on a few. Dickinson's Kestrel and, and Racketailed Roller just didn't, didn't want to play ball. Um, but then, yeah, just moving through Kruger, we managed to spend time in Chinguetsi and Latab and Satara, and, and then finally down to Bergendahl. I think a lot of you saw that we had a few tent flooding issues which which made things tricky um but yeah added to the added to the really really cool kind of family experience which we all had there and, and the kids loved kruger wow just uh, i think be having all the big game you know elephant every day for them was such a treat um because they didn't get as much joy from the pipits and larks that we were getting so it actually felt great to to seeing them so excited and, and enjoying enjoying the reserve which was which was wonderful um and then yeah we we, we managed to 
to to go through and the buff-breasted sandpiper were hung around for us and after two stressful hours of searching for him we were the only only car there at that stage and managed to locate it which was wonderful and the kids were excited because we were excited and they could see the bird and i think they're also excited that they could finally get out the car for a bit after a long drive from 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 Bergendal area back towards Durban and then yeah we managed to we got home I think it was the this the Monday afternoon well the Sunday afternoon sorry and uh, Monday morning news broke of the striped crake up at Mkuzi so we we chatted to the kids and the kids or Ren who's our spokesman of the children she said that really uh, to get back in the car that she wasn't happy so we thought let's not make this a negative experience for them I mean six weeks on the road was a really big ask for them so myself and Christine we left them with the super grannies and we yeah we got back into the car and drove up to Mkuzi immediately so we got there on monday uh, late afternoon i think it was four o'clock waited for about an hour and and yeah the strap craig performed beautifully and the chicks are on and yeah that was that was a pretty um, um, unbelievable and, and special experience to to see and and yeah a great tick for our, our big year list which was also fantastic um yeah so we've so the kids and christine are taking a bit of a break while i'm up here for some work and next week we'll begin the, i think it's on wednesday we'll start up again uh, as we we start to to target some more areas and to try and get that list as close as we can to 600 in the next couple of weeks so yeah i'll try and keep you guys posted as much as possible and thanks to everyone for your constant support we've had a lot of messages of just intel from people and and support and we really really appreciate it and thanks to the birding life guys also just for for keeping us in the loop and and yeah just for the support it's 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 incredible to have awesome guys keep well happy birding we have really loved following the widow's family journey over this past couple of months be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. We'll put all the links into the comments section of this episode. Also be sure to support the BirdLife South Africa Community Guide Project that they are raising awareness and funds for during their big year. So let's hear from today's guest, Kellen Cohen. Okay, Kellen, welcome to the show. Uh, I know we've been chatting about doing this episode for a long time, so it's good to find you, have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Thanks for inviting me, Adam. So we can chat about a whole lot of different things today. And I just said when I was preparing for this episode, the reality is there's so much that you've done, so much that you've achieved. And yeah, it was quite intimidating to try and figure out what to chat about. So I hope we're really going to give justice to who you are as a person in this time we have together. Cool. Thank you. So you mentioned yesterday that you had just seen your 133rd lockdown bird in your Scarborough Garden in the Western Cape. That's pretty insane. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, I had no idea that there'd be so many birds in uh, in the Cape Town garden during lockdown. I mean, I live in Scarborough, which is a small village, sort of in the southern part of Cape Town, and it is surrounded, you know, by the national park. So they, there's a lot of bush around for birds, and there's a nice view of the sea. So that helps a lot. But other than that, you know, there's no proper wetland nearby, and it's a reasonably small area. My garden itself is extremely small. It's more about the view of things that I can see. And so to have seen 133 birds in a year is just, I almost can't believe it. I would probably get something like 80 or 90 over time. But I guess it just goes to show what you do when you're sitting in one place and listening and looking the whole time. Um, I set up a telescope in the front of my house, and I'm able to look down at the sea and across the reserve, and I'm often scanning the sky and just listening for what what's around really yeah so a lot of people might be listening to this episode and have no idea who you are so i think just as a starting point can you just give us a brief overview of who you are yeah well i guess um i'm involved in birding in all sorts of different ways so my main day job as a birder is i run the tour company birding africa which i founded with a friend about 24 years ago and that keeps me extremely occupied. It's, um, we're a team of about 20 people running tours all over Africa. And so in terms of planning logistics of tours and tour leading, you know, I've led probably actually close to 200 tours in more than 20 African countries. You know, a lot of my birding experience is now based on that and that experience. And in addition to the tour leading and that side of things, I've also been interested in birds since you know I was a kid, really, and also from a scientific point of view. So I studied ornithology. I did a doctorate in ornithology at the Fitzpatrick Institute, and you know that scientific side has also been a part of who I am as a birder. And yeah, I mean, I guess in addition to that, I've also been involved in various birding books and articles. And those, these things all sort of 
you know bring it all together i'm also very interested in other aspects of wildlife as well not just birds but also you know other wildlife animals natural history and flowers and especially around the cape where i'm based so you must have quite good time management because you've done a huge amount of things eh? <laughs> yeah i really struggle with time management actually i find i get pulled in all sorts of different directions and Yes, um, that's that's my perennial struggle. I mean, I really like to focus on particular things at particular times. I think that's the only way I survive. But you're right. Uh, I'm often struggling to meet deadlines and catch up with things and deciding what to do. And then we're going to chat a whole lot about your birding in a moment. But besides birding, you know, what other interests do you have? I guess I'm interested, in, like many birders are, in sort of all aspects of nature. So I do have a very strong birding focus, but when I'm out in nature, I find that all sorts of other things attract my attention. In particular, uh, like many other birders, I've become very interested in dragonflies over the last few years. I've actually just busy co-authoring a book on the dragonflies of Madagascar with a friend of mine, Katie Dijkstra. But also things like butterflies, I've co-led butterfly tours with Steve Woodall. And I think especially flowers, where I'm based in the Cape, there's you know fantastic flora, and thousands and thousands of species have become very interested in that. Um, and in particular, often things like, you know, bird, you know, bird or plant animal interactions like pollination and other aspects. You know, just to go back, just to rewind a little bit back to the beginning of your story, how did this fascination with nature and birds start? So I'm from Cape Town. I've been birding since I was a kid. It really goes back to probably when I was about 10 years old. I remember doing a school project on the secretary bird. That helped me get me started, became involved with the museum club. There were crowned lapwings on the school field. And then sort of getting involved with, you know, the Cape Bird Club. I had very supportive parents and very supportive mentors who were willing to encourage and help and take me birding. And since then, I guess I've always known that I wanted to have a life involved with birds. I initially always wanted to be an ornithologist. You know, I went the scientific route. I studied at the University of Cape Town, eventually doing my doctorate. Peter Ryan, who's a really well-known bird personality in South Africa, was one of my advisors and mentors. And so I started very much in that scientific route, which is a route that, you know, I I do very much part-time to this day. But then actually when I was studying, I founded the, you know, the company Birding Africa. And that then eventually began to define a lot of my birding route because initially I was very interested in birding in South Africa and Southern Africa. I was really, you know, interested in at that time seeing 800 species in southern africa was the big milestone but as i started to move further afield and started birding more in other different african countries i started to become very much more interested in all the birds of africa you know and especially you know where to find them and also i think my biggest interest has become you know the bird songs their bird songs and calls you mentioned earlier that you were that you are involved in the fitzpatrick institute so what does your role look like with them Yeah, so I did my university studies through them, and I've remained a research associate there. So all the scientific research I do is through them. So if I'm doing scientific papers, then I do it through the organization. I also assist students there where I can, and I lead a very small biodiversity module for conservation biology students as part of their sort of world-famous conservation biology master's course. But I do that. This is very much a part-time thing because... As you can imagine, um, running a bird tour company is very much a very, very busy role. So as you said, time management is tricky. And I've found that actually quite tricky, although I do like the research side of things and I'm always trying to do more. I find, you know, just balancing that with sort of my day job as leading tours is always a challenge. So tell us a little bit about Africa Birding. Tell us about the the company and also which countries that you guys operate in. Yeah, so so, um, Birding Africa operates in in most African countries where, you know, tourism is possible and which have good birds. Yeah, it's been a very rewarding part of my life. As I said, we're a team of about 20. It's been recommended as one of the top 10 bird tour companies in the world. And some of our better known guides are people like Michael Mills, Tertius Host, Joe Grossel, and Vincent Ward. And we lead tours really from South Africa to West Africa, Liberia, Ghana, Sierra Leone, up to Ethiopia, Tanzania, Kenya. Uganda, really basically everywhere um, where it's possible to run a tour. We've even led tours to Somalia, and some of them are more expedition style, like to places like Chad. Others are really quite normal, like to the Okavango Delta. So we have this the, the different types of tours where some are these very intense birding expedition type tours. Others focus very much on endemics and going to the best birding spots in an area. And we also do tours that focus on a more relaxed balance of 
birding and wildlife, such as, you know, going and watching the Serengeti wildebeest migration and seeing all the best birds at that time there. And we also either do other specialist tours, such as flower tours, butterfly tours, dragonfly tours, and even just short tours from Cape Town, you know, day, one day and two day trips from Cape Town will be based. Another aspect of, of Birding Africa is our associated company called Cape Town Pelagics, which is a runs pelagic trips out of Cape Town. We've done so for 20 years. Uh, a lot of South Africans especially really enjoy coming on them and getting all these really cool pelagic birds. And that's something we've been running. It's not the same company exactly. We're just associated companies. And that's been running as a, a not for, on a not-for-profit basis for the last 20 years. And we donate you know, any surplus profits we make to Albatross Research and Conservation. And that's been really very successful. If a client had one week to do a birding trip anywhere in Africa, which country would you recommend and why? And what would the trip look like for the week? <laughs> I think my answer to that question probably depends on when you ask me. It's so difficult to say. Like one, one country that pops to mind immediately is Uganda. I mean, it's an amazing country to see lots of birds, really special birds in a short amount of time. You know, you can do things like flying into Entebbe, going to look for Shubal on the big papyrus swamps on the edge of Lake Victoria, and then heading down to the forests of the western side close to the Congo border where there are really wonderful birds such as African green broadbill and green-breasted pitta, black bee eater and all sorts of fantastic birds and also amazing primates such as gorillas and chimpanzees. That might be a really fun week but then if I was in another mood I could say well well you could go to the highlands of Ethiopia and sort of be immersed in that sort of you know amazing different cultural experience and at the same time seeing all these wonderful endemics such as spot-breasted lapwings, uh, blue-winged geese, so many interesting things, even seeing things like Simeon Wolf up there. It's so hard to say. It really depends which mood one's in. Going to the Serengeti for a week is also incredible with the big movements of birds there on the migration. Even doing a trip in South Africa is really special, you know, being able to combine the Cape and the endemics of the Cape and Karoo and the pelagic trip up with the more tropical parts, you know, in the Kruger or in the Highland grasslands around Pakistan. We've also got a very special country. Yeah, one of my dream locations, which funny enough is actually where I was born, is actually to go do a birding trip up into Zimbabwe. I mean, I've been visited Zimbabwe, but I wasn't a birder yet. I'd love to go up there and actually visit it as a birder. There's this absolutely phenomenal species there. Yeah, there is. Zimbabwe is a very special place, you know, with the, the eastern highlands, you know, with those forests and deep lowland valleys as well. And combined, you know, with the wonderful grasslands up on the Mashonaland Plateau, then with the whole Miombo Belt, and the more sort of tropical valleys, you know, around the country, it really makes for an incredible combination of birds. Yeah, so let me ask this question. You've been into what a lot of people call deepest, darkest Africa many times, and there's a whole lot of conceptions around how that how that looks. You must have had some um, scary moments. So which of these times sticks out to you? Sure. Um it's actually less scary than, than one might imagine, actually. Of course, the, the really scary ones I probably can't tell you about. You'll have to get me, you'll have to meet for a beer or something for those. <laughs> um, but it's actually really not too bad. It's more about planning and logistics and having good contacts and being very flexible when things don't go quite according to plan. I think probably um, the most scary bits are, you know, probably when I've been lost, you know, because being lost in a very remote area is, you know, extremely scary. Yeah, I've, I've certainly been lost more than my fair share of times. Got lost in the Central African rainforest while looking for Congo peafowl once. I wrote about that in another story. One of the other times that I got lost really rather scarily was um, we were in Chad and we were actually on a little expedition to look for Niam Niam parrot, which is actually a relatively poorly known parrot of Central Africa that hasn't been seen for a very long time, I think something like 70 years. And we looked and did a bit of scheming based on old records and maps and uh, Google Earth. And, and, the, and it turned out that the road we thought would take us down to this area was nothing more than a sandy track, a very deeply sandy track. And it just took, you know, we just kept, kept getting stuck, you know, even in our four-wheel drives. It was basically just a, a two-wheel track with a middle monarchy. And we headed south and south, and it just we didn't very make very much progress um, through the sort of Guinea Congolian savanna, a huge swathe of a little bit like a northern equivalent of Miombo woodland. And then eventually we decided just to stop on the side of the road. It was a very poor. There were no people in the area. It was a vast area without people, and we made a little fire and set up our tents, um, discussed our plan, and then went to sleep. 
And in, and I always, whenever I go to sleep, especially when I'm camping, I'm very interested in bird sounds and especially night sounds. There's all sorts of strange bird sounds at night that, you know, are little known and there's what chances to make discoveries. And so I sleep with my sound recorder by my bed and I, I sort of, just before I went to sleep, I noticed um, there was a grayish eagle owl calling quite nicely, a pair duetting. And I was literally in my sleeping bag and I thought, oh, it would be great just to quickly pop out and just get a nice recording. So I stood next to my tent. It was a little bit cold, but I got out and started getting a recording. But they actually flew a little bit further. So I just thought, well, I'll just take a few steps, you know, I'll take a few steps into the, into the, into the woodland. And they, they actually were, you know, owls, they're actually often a little bit further than you think. So I walked a little bit further and then I'm like, oh, I better not, you know, get lost. Let's keep an eye on the tent. I could see the fire still burning. That was right. And then I walked a little bit further. And then eventually I got quite close to them, got some really nice recordings. And then I turned around and thought, okay, let me just walk back to the tent just over there. And then I realized that, in fact, that I'd become disoriented and that I actually had no idea, which I walked to where I thought the camp was and the camp wasn't there. And now I'm like, you know, you know, hundreds of miles from any sort of town or settlement. It's the middle of the night. You know, I'm just standing. Literally, I've just got out of my sleeping bag. It's actually a little bit cold. And I'm just thinking, you know, what do I do now? I mean, I can't. You know, I shouted a little bit, but everybody else was asleep and possibly out of earshot now. There was no road nearby. You know, it was just a small little track. So it wasn't as if I could, like, wait for the morning and hit, listen for a highway. You know, I couldn't just walk in one direction and hope to cross a road because I might walk in the wrong direction and walk for tens of kilometers, you know, into, just into deeper into the bush. And then I started to panic a little bit and then thought, oof, this is a very scary moment. How did I end up in this situation? I walked down a little bit more to try and find my bearings. I realized that there was a tree that I thought I recognized and I didn't. And then eventually I sat down under a tree and, you know, really tried to sort of calm down and think where I was. And then I just thought, well, this need to clear my head a bit. So I just walked forward about 200 meters and just tried to clear my head. And I just stood there and thought, okay, now what am I going to do now? I'm going to, I guess I'm going to like cuddle, like curl up under a tree and then, you know, wait till morning. And I was just standing thinking, oh, I can't believe I've been such a fool. And then I just saw this like, flicker of red on the on the like in the distance and I couldn't quite and, and I looked at it it just disappeared and then I was watching it and it just this little red light switched on and then it switched off again and I thought what is that now I'm losing my mind so I walked a little bit closer and I then realized that it was the the embers of the fire that we made and the fire was out completely and completely black. But every time a gust of wind came through, the embers like lit up red, like, like you know, the car brake lights, um, and then would go off again. And that just seeing that in the distance through some trees just led me straight back to camp. And there we are, finally got back to my tent, feeling a bit of a fool and very glad to be back. That's kind of where you wish you had a little bit of cell phone signal out there. <laughs> no cell phone signal. We actually went on to find the Niam Niam parrot, which was very exciting. But yeah, definitely a bit unnerved by that. Yeah, but... Obviously, the international borders are not open at the moment for, for many countries. But, you know, just for the sake of international listeners, even for South, or even for the sake of South African listeners who are listening to the show, who maybe when, you know, an international borders open again, want to do a trip into Africa, you know, what advice would you give them? Because I think there is a lot of misconceptions, a lot of things that people have said about what Africa is all about, which is not true. So what advice would you give someone who wants to plan a birding trip into Africa. I do think one thing that's important is is booking with a tour company. I do think it is important. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it is good to go with a, a reputable and trusted tour company. Uh, I mean, I guess the thing about many African countries that, is that um, there's a perception that they can be very dangerous and unsafe. And mostly that perception is actually reasonably untrue. It's a little bit like South Africa. Many people perceive it to be very unsafe. But, but when you know a bit about the conditions and when you, when you understand what's happening on the ground, you realize that it's not necessarily that it's completely untrue. Like certain areas at certain times are best avoided. And the same would apply in South Africa and the same applies in all, Afri in all countries in Africa. And really having the, the trusted contacts to know which are the areas that are best avoided um, so that you can really get the best out of the places and the people and the birds. Is really what you want to make sure you've got right. And working with a trusted company or trusted people is really probably the best way to do that. So you're part of the newly formed African Bird Names Committee. What is this initiative all about? Yes, I guess bird names have been in the, in the news a little bit of late. This initiative is about 
a frustration that quite a few of us have had uh, over the last years with bird names that seem to be changing unnecessarily and without consultation. So we all know about, you know, South Africa went through a big bird name change about, I guess, 20 years ago. And that was part of a globalization um, of sort of aligning our bird names with other countries in Africa and the rest of the world. And generally, even though I think many people were frustrated by that process, although it was a lot of good, I think there were bird names where we had exactly the same name for another bird that also occurred in another part of the world, another part of Africa. And that's confusing because people are birding all around Africa now and, um, you know, African birders are very much birding as, you know, as one group. And we do need to have an, like a single name that we can call a bird in English that we can talk about across Africa and across the world, you know, for conservation and birding and all sorts of things. And there's been a new process that's been happening in the last few years. And that is a sort of, as the birding lists become globalized in, in platforms like eBird, there are a few people, um, mainly in the Northern Hemisphere, who have started putting together these lists and coming up with rules for how they should be, and then applying these rules across the African the African birds list, but with, and making changes, but without talking in any way to African birders. And so a particular one that myself and lots of colleagues, because we have really good connections in all African countries, find very frustrating is like one of the rules in these bird names is that an imposed rule is that one bird name cannot be contained in the name of another bird name. So there's a green broadbill in Asia, which is a very famous bird. And so the global list decided, well, um, we have an African green broadbill in Africa, which is something, a very special bird, especially in Uganda. And well, the word green broadbill is actually contained in the word African green broadbill. So instead of calling the Asian one Asian green broadbill, we're just going to change the name of African green broadbill and impose the name of Grower's broadbill. And so for, you know, somebody sitting in the Northern Hemisphere to sort of impose a name on the African birding community without any consultation and just change the name, you know, of an iconic bird that people are talking about all the time, just doesn't feel right. And there were lots of examples of this. You know, we have our um, morning dove or African morning dove. You know, in America, they have a bird called the morning dove. And they decided, well, we don't want to call ours the American morning dove. Um, we're just going to call ours morning dove. And, well, that means African morning dove can't be because morning dove is contained within the name African morning dove. So we're going to, call, we're going to change the name to morning collared dove. So suddenly eBird and all of these other things impose the name morning collared dove on African birders. We've never called the bird morning collared dove before. And things like in South Africa, tit babblers. We've, you know, we have these two birds that are essentially endemic to South Africa, chestnut vented tit babbler um, and Laud's tit babbler. There was a bit of research showing that they're actually quite closely related to Sylvia warblers. So the list still said, well, we're going to call them chestnut vented warbler now because they're related to warblers. And so there's a name, but nobody, very few people actually call these birds chestnut vented warbler. I mean, maybe now once the names have been changed. But where, you know, a, a name of an African bird that people use very widely has simply been changed in order to meet a sort of a standard or a neatness standard in, in a global list. And the idea behind this bird name committee is getting a wide representation of people all around Africa. I think we've got 100, probably 150 people on the committee now. And uh, just saying, well, what do we call the birds? You know, what are the names we use? Do we use African Green Boardball? Do you use Chestnut French Tit Babylon? If so, we, if we use those names, then those are the names that we should they should be fixed and we shouldn't have these new names imposed on us from you know people sitting on committees in the northern hemisphere who are not involved and then as the idea is as you know they come need to change names if people feel there's need to change names then we can also evaluate that you know as a unified african committee you know as opposed to you know having people change their names for us so that's the idea behind it and are you guys working with the the new the, the normal listing committees in the different countries yes so we we are so we tr we trying to do it's very much a collaborative effort between you know it, it, it is a committee of itself with its own rules but the idea is to work is to basically unite all African listing committees and which we've pretty much done so far to come up with a common voice and discuss things and to change our views if necessary but to have a process that happens here in Africa and across Africa we've got people from I think at least 15 countries involved and rather than simply have these bird names imposed. And then is there a way that people can get involved? Definitely. Um, it's active at the moment. And I, there is an email address that, that I don't know if you've got it's like a comment section that we can you know, put the email address in. 
Yeah, we can pop in the comment section for sure. Yeah, so we can put it in there. And you can simply write to the committee. It's currently chaired by Michael Mills in of South Africa and Washington Wachira from Kenya. And just say you want to be involved and you can be put on the Google group and we can start discussing ideas. So yeah, let's go back a little bit, little bit more local. Um, you recently got a green warbler in your garden. Now, this is a massive find for South Africa. Um, warblers are one of the most notoriously tricky birds to ID. I mean, a lot of birders see them unless they call. They've got absolutely no idea what they're looking at. So tell us the story and how did you manage to ID the bird? Sure, that was, that. yeah, that um, really threw my weekend into disarray two weeks ago. Just remarkably exciting. I was um, sitting working at my computer um, early on a Sunday morning trying to get some admin done. And as I mentioned before, I'm extremely interested in African bird calls. And I'm also extremely interested in keeping my, you know, house lockdown list, you know, as high as possible by trying to get every little obscure bird that passes through the neighborhood. And so when I heard this call, I thought, oh, immediately I realized that this is not a bird call that I know. Uh, and so I quick, I got up from my desk, grabbed my binoculars, which are always there, and went out onto the deck and had a little look to see if I could see it. It was calling quite regularly, actually. Um, and I lifted my binoculars and it was w- working through the canopy of a tree quite close to me, flitting around quite actively. I couldn't quite see it. And then it popped into a little gap. And I knew instantly then that it was a first for Southern Africa. And in fact, the green warbler is a first for Africa because it was, I could see that it was an, an, a, a philoscopus warbler, you know, like a willow warbler, but that it wasn't any of the African ones. Um, they're relatively few in Africa, but I've seen them all. I had quite a bit of experience with them. And so the, the combination of that unusual call and what I saw made me realize it was an Asian one. And if anybody knows anything about Asian philoscopus warblers, they're actually extremely difficult to identify. And the main thing with them is actually the call. And even though I'm no expert on identifying Asian philosopher's warblers, I knew from speaking to people and just, you know, hearing what people say and being aware that these Asian ones, the call is absolutely key. So I raced inside, grabbed my microphone, put it all together, raced outside and just managed to, to record a bit of the call before it stopped calling. And then, and then sort of began to contemplate this whole thing. I then put the word out and, yeah, uh, with uh, my friend Fancy Peacock, he quickly managed to, to do a sonogram of the call. Uh, and we began to sort of send it out to a whole lot of uh, international experts in terms of who know these birds really, really well, who were able to con- confirm their identification. And it, it, is, it, it is a remarkable bit of luck but it is it, it and so i guess i do want to emphasize that when i first heard it i didn't know immediately that it was a green warbler you know it was more about being very familiar with my local bird calls you know listening to them every day day in day out always listening for something unusual and then seeing the bird realizing from the characters what group of birds it was in and then also sending it to those specialists to you know help identify it you know i did suggest that a lot of Local birders heard this. Not a, let me not say a lot, a lot of local birders, but let's say some local birders. So some local birders had heard or even had seen this species. What they might have done is they might have made it fit into one of the local birds. And the challenge for many birders who have very little or even no international experience, either overseas or even on the African continent, is to try and identify species that they would have absolutely no frame of reference for. Yes, um, that is true. Um, I guess I should also add that I've seen many birds and got quite excited about them and then realized that they were just variants of common birds. And that's happened a lot, you know, over, over my birding journey through the years. It happens to be all the time that I see something and I think, oh, that looks a bit interesting. And then um, realize, in fact, that it's a common bird just making a slightly funny call or looking a bit of a funny angle. And so it, it is this you know, when you're faced with the situation as a birder, you have to really use your judgment. You know, is it, you know, what is the most likely scenario? Is it just a common bird, it, uh, you know, wh- which is, you, you wear one bit of an unusual thing. And I guess you just have to, to the way to, to really know that is, I guess, just just looking at common birds a lot. Uh, I mean, it's often, you know, tempting to to always think that rarities are the most interesting birds, and you know, um, it's quite fun chasing rarities and looking for them and gaining experience of them. But I think if you just get to really know the the birds really well in your area, especially the calls, that that's really when things jump out. And it is also important to know that 
that you know in, in many cases the most likely explanation is that it's a common bird doing something slightly different or maybe looking a little bit different i mean we actually have um in scarborough you know i started a wildlife telegram group a few years ago just to get people more interested and aware of wildlife and and birding and you know all sorts of things around scarborough we've actually got about 300 people in it and one of the one of the people who joined initially, who's you know become quite a good friend of mine, was very much starting on their birding journey. And they, like I remember doing this myself. You know, when you're starting, you tend to think that things are rarities when you see them. So, you know, this, this person had saw what was a yellow bishop in the wetland, uh, and she believed it to be a black cuckoo shrike. You know, because it was black with a bit of yellow on the shoulder. And, and was very skeptical of me saying, well, you know, it must be a yellow bishop because it's, you know, in the marsh. And then she saw there was, a, there we have little egrets on the beach. She saw a little egret. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, but in, if you look in your field guide, actually, the juvenile little blue heron, which has only been seen in South Africa or even Africa once, probably twice, extreme rarity, actually is, looks very much like a little egret. And she felt that it, in fact, it was probably a little blue heron because it very much looked like that in the book. And so, you know, one can end up in the situation where you also do need to, when you're building your experience, you know, realize that, you know, you know, not everything you see is going to be a rarity. Anyway, she then found another bird in Scarborough uh, and probably was getting a bit tired of me telling her, no, it's actually a more, it's a common bird. It's not actually the rare bird. And she didn't tell me. And I was sitting on Thursday evening and I got Trevor's rare bird report. And there was a photograph of a broad-billed prion, the only, uh, a living broad-billed prion on on Scarborough Beach, just a few hundred meters from where I live, that she'd seen while wandering on the beach and that had then, you know, waddled off down the beach and flown away. And there, the irony of me having telling her that, no, you must always consider what the, um, you know, the common bird is. And she had actually gone and found a national rarity that I don't know. There are very few people, almost no people who've seen broadbill pine in Southern Africa, except her. So there has to be there's a bit of a balance between finding common things that look a little bit like rare things and then also finding rare things and realizing it. And I think just through experience is how you can calibrate yourself with that. So it's probably like getting familiar with uh, what's common in terms of what you see and also what you hear. And once the more familiar, more familiar you are with what is common, the more likely you are to, to identify something when it doesn't fit into the, that, that sort of criteria. Is that, is, would that be correct? Exactly. The more you look at common things, and I find it quite fun looking at common things and listening out for them and looking how they move and behave. The, when, you, when you do see something rare, it just jumps out. One's mind is so good at, you know, it forms these patterns in the background and it's just slowly accumulating information. And then when you see something different, almost without even realizing, you know, I mean, I'm sure almost you've had this experience and probably almost everyone has, you know, when you look and look a lot of common birds and then suddenly you see a rare bird maybe that you've seen in the book or not even a rare bird but a bird that you've read about in the book and you know instantly that's what it is because you've prepared for it and and i guess that's the danger of i mean i've i've met a couple of people who are really extreme twitchers where you know almost all that they they chase after is that next bird on their list and a lot of these some of these people i met they don't do a lot of their own birding it's almost like every weekend they're looking where the latest twitches and getting out there and, and nothing against twitching i'm talking about people who just where it's almost an extreme thing and i think the danger in that is that you're not you don't familiarize yourself with the common birds enough and you almost you you're not going to find stuff yourself you're almost going to just find what other people are finding so I think it's yeah, just birding local as much as you can and just getting out as, as often as you can and just enjoying what you do see. So when something that something special shows up that you're in the right place at the right time and you've got the skills to identify it. Yes, I agree. I mean, there's nothing wrong with chasing rarities and getting field experience with those birds. But I think it's important to challenge yourself as well. You know, if you're always chasing after what somebody else has found, it's great because you do get to see the birds, you, you build that experience. But it's also good to try and find things yourself, you know, just by going through, just walking and birding and following up calls that you don't know and just watching birds as they fly off. Even some of those birds that you know, you know, watch them when you see them closely and then you watch them fly off, think, well, if I'd just seen that bird flying now, would I have known what it was? You know, is there something about the way it's flying, about the way it's moving that really allows me to to get the ID? Because, in fact, a lot of the, when you're birding, a lot of what you're picking up is not 
you know, just always the standard field marks. You're taking in everything. You're, you're taking a lot of calls in the background. You're taking in just well, how birds move and your body is sort of looking at them or your mind and, and you know, knowing what they are. And then when something is different, that's when you sort of hone into it. So every single good bird I've spoken to on the show, the one thing that every single one of them have in common is this thing where they say that you've got to get good at at, at being able to familiarize yourself and, and get better at bird calls. So, you know, for a lot of birders, it's that's the challenging area. It's a lot easier to learn the visual side of birds than it is to learn the, the you know, the audio side. What what practical suggestions could you give to listeners to improve in terms of, of bird calls? Yeah, bird calls are really challenging. And I guess that's why I find them fun and I'm so interested in them. It's much harder to learn bird calls and to hurt, to learn, you know, other visual field marks. But it's really, really rewarding. And, and I find it really helps me as a birder. And, and the way that I do it is, I think the most basic way is to simply go out and to listen, okay, and just to try and recognize every call. And then the calls that you don't re- recognize, you just go and find. And I find that you slowly get to know those ones. And you forget them as well. Um, and then you get to relearn them again. And then slowly, slowly it builds until you really know them. I also find it quite, quite useful to record bird sounds sometimes, especially ones you don't know. It's nice to have a frame of reference, just like when you take a photo of a distant raptor, you can then look at it and then look at uh, in more detail. It's also sometimes useful to record a, some bird calls. So if there's a warbler calling in a bush near you, it's good to have a recording. You can just use your phone these days. I mean, phones are so good at getting recordings. Um, you can either use the voice record apps or... You know, some of the you can also just get free apps that are quite good for recording on phones, and I do that quite regularly. I mean, if I heard a nice bird call, I'll just lift my phone and get a small recording. Um, the resources for calls are great as well. So another thing to realize is that when you listen to your app and there's like a very particular call, you know, each bird call is a little bit different. So it's nice to have a few repetitions. So it's nice to listen to the call on your app and then you know go online to something like Xeno Canto listen to a few other variations, and then get more of a sense for for the bird call itself. Each bird's got quite a variety of calls, with a, and they all sound a little bit different, and it's nice to get a sense of that variation. So, yeah, you've authored uh, two books, as far as I know. Is that correct? Two books? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so before we chat about um, one of the one of the books, which was one of my favorite books, let's, just, let's look at your bookshelf. What are some of your favorite books? Sure. Well, it's hard to choose. I do have a lot of bird books. I think many birders do. I mean, in some ways, uh, and I've got a lot of international books, and I really enjoy most of them. I mean, I think in some ways we were remarkable in in South Africa to have someone like Fancy Peacock because he's produced a series of books. You know, the LBJs, the Waders, his kids' book, which actually is not only for kids, which are just the most remarkable books, and they just capture our birds in a way that I've never really seen captured before. Just really getting the essence of the birds so wonderful, so wonderfully not only exactly how they look, but also where they are in the landscape and their behaviors. And I think if I had to choose, I'd say that Fancy's books are the, my favorite books on the bookshelf. Uh, Fancy's books are really, really amazing. But when I get to chat to people, one of the books that I recommend more than many other books is the Southern African Bird Find. I'd actually say it's one of my my top five favorite books. And you were one of the co-authors of that book. This must have been a really epic book to put together. I mean, it's a for those who haven't, uh, who don't know about the book, it's a, a book that helps you to, you know, to find birds in Southern Africa. And it's it's an amazing, I just was telling Callan uh, before we did the interview that, you know, I'd never seen a secretary bird a few years ago and, um, well, quite a few years ago, and I'd never seen a secretary bird. And remember, you know, getting the book and the book wrote about how you can find a sec- secretary bird in Howick. I drove up the road and I was quite skeptical to be honest with you. And they said, no, if you drive along this, this is a good stretch. Got to that stretch, looked to the left and within a couple of hundred meters, there were, I think there were actually two secretary birds. So I'm sold on this book and I recommend everyone to get this book. So yeah, it must be an epic book to put together. Yeah, it was It was a lot of fun. We did a lot of traveling, you know, especially with my co-author Claire Spottiswood and also Jono and, and we also had some really great contributions from Etienne Marais. Anthony Sizik in Zimbabwe, Pete Leonard in Zambia, and a host of other people who helped with sharing information on their favorite sites. And we did a huge amount of traveling around Southern Africa, visiting all the sites, making notes, and trying to come up with the best way of presenting the sites that sort of distilled the essential details of the birds that the site was most special for, and the best ways to get, get one onto them. So it was a lot of fun. It was also a huge amount of work. 
you know, doing that big, doing the maps and getting it all to sync and getting all the logistics right. But yeah, a really fun project to be involved with. Yeah, and we we are planning an update. I definitely cannot wait for the update. But let's just chat about one of your your newer accolades. You were part of Raven Dickops, which was the team for which was your team for Birding Big Day 2020. And you guys saw an amazing 335 species in a single day. That is like insane. And this is not only the record for South Africa, but it was also the fourth highest total for the world ever. So tell us a bit about the day and also what sort of planning goes into getting that kind of target. Yeah, I know. It was an extremely exciting day. I mean, I've done a few of these birding big days, bird races before, including like the International Champions of the Flyway one, but this was definitely the most exciting. I guess I really like the that kind of challenge of being pushed to the limits, you know, with skill and endurance and also that sort of really fine scale patterns of knowledge that are required to make this a success. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it was intense. I mean, it was an intense 24-hour roller coaster of ups and downs. Uh, and it got especially exciting when we realized, you know, the record was in sight, you know, later on in the day. You know, we had those real low moments in the day when it rained at the wrong times. You know, it rained on the first night. We missed a few easy night birds. It rained mid-morning when we were supposed to be raptor scanning. We missed a few easy things. Had some terrible wind at our dusk spot in the second evening. Uh, and then combined with some really amazing patches where, you know, everything is perfect. Everyone works together well as a team. The birds are just where they're supposed to be. Birds fly over calling at just the right place. It was extremely exciting. I mean, I think these birding big days... And, you know, especially this one are very much about teamwork. You know, there's a team, you know, four people that are involved with this. You know, the the, the Raven Dickups team was um, myself, Brad Arthur, Mark Conrier, and Michael Mills. And um, we definitely, in terms of making success of a, of a birding bit, I think, you know, planning is key. And I think, you know, Michael Mills was our absolute planner in chief. And, and I'm sure you've heard he's an exceptionally skilled bird. But not only that, he takes... He certainly took planning to the next level and, you know, his preparations and planning, you know, really were the sort of basis of our success as a team. We had also some other great help from guys like Andrew Wagner and David Snow and, and others. And so what you need, what we did is basically, so the first thing is to recce, you, to make a list of all the possible birds, make a, a list of what birds are at which sites, put the sites together in the logistical order that, that you can execute on the day. And then do lots and lots of reconnaissance to see which sites are going well and which sites aren't. So we had the day plan out in five-minute blocks, um, literally five-minute blocks, with where we needed to be at all times with a sort of a primary and a secondary bird list for each site. And then we had sub-sites with backup that we could be a little bit flexible with on the day and then when if things didn't go too well at one site we'd have to decide to then include another site on the way um, and if things did go really well then we could leave out sites and so keeping that algorithm going during the day is just extremely extremely intense focus and so literally crossing birds off that you're getting and then every time you stop the car talking about what birds we need to see at the next site um, because when you're prepared, it's, it is definitely easier to see them. The other thing you need to do is that you need to work really well as a team because you have to see three out of the four team members have to see or hear the bird. And so you can't walk off by yourself or see things in by yourself. We actually saw a total of 340 birds in total, but 335 that we, we saw as a team. So getting everybody in sync and working together um, was like an extremely important parts of you know having a successful day and i think the other thing about making it successful is that it's good to have all that preparation leading up to the day but also what we did in the week before was visiting all of our sites again just a day or two before and just checking you know if that bird was in that reed bed or if those particular birds were calling on those bits of road and then just slightly amending the itinerary to to take in what was happening at that exact moment. And we also did things like find nests and winter visits, you know, check nests in the evening and all sorts of things. So there's a lot that you can do when you're looking to make every single bird count. And you guys didn't use any helicopters. We didn't. We didn't use any helicopters. One of our competing teams did use helicopters. Um, and that really put the pressure on us, actually, to 
make sure that we could sort of compensate for that by you know trying to be as organized as we could be uh, and trying to do as much preparation as, as we could do um, but it was extremely fun and we worked really well as a team it was it was a fantastic effort yeah if you haven't tried out birding big day i really encourage you at the end of this year it's in last saturday november it's an epic day to be a part of and i know it's a big fundraiser for BirdLife south africa so get involved in that you know i'll pop a link uh for birding big day in the comment section also so just last question. Callum, you have achieved so much already in your life. So what does the future path look like for you right now? Um, sure, yes. Um, well, I mean, I guess we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so I guess one of my main roles is, you know, is going to be bringing, you know, Birding Africa, you know, the tour company through the pandemic, making sure that it adjusts well to the world opening up. There's already signs that things are opening up a little bit, but it's all much slower than we anticipated. And so, you know, getting that balance right and working with our team, you know, is going to be a very big part of my role. But then there's all sorts of ways that I'm keen to get involved. I'm always keen to get people more involved with birding. Um, as I mentioned, we have plans to update the bird finder. And uh, so that's quite exciting. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you know, as time goes on, I'll going to be more projects that I'm going to be involved with. Hi, right, Kellen. I really appreciate you being on the show. I know this has been, for those, well, no one will know what time we but this was recorded early on a Tuesday morning. So thanks for, yeah, for your time. I really appreciate it. And we're looking. For, I'm looking forward to having a chat again sometime. I know there's so much more we can still chat about. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Adam. It's Thanks for, yeah, taking the time to chat. It's been, it's been yeah, nice to chat with you. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Bird Enough project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders and exciting birds out there do not forget to follow the birding life on instagram and facebook we really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts be sure to check out bird Lasser and download the app on either ios or android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation as well as sarovsky optic one of the world's leading producers of binoculars binoculars and spotting scopes so until next time, be blessed and happy birding.